Welcome to Board Gamers Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is episode 298, the top 10 endless games. We'd like to thank all of our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, we got a special episode for you this week. Obviously, we always want to get the best games to the table. And this week on our special feature review, we are talking about the top 10 endless games. If by chance you find yourself in a situation that you might need a game that lasts a little bit longer than usual. Yeah. <laughs> just let's say you're stuck inside. Let's just say what? that. Possibly How? that's happened to you. <laughs> That's got to be what? I don't know. One or two people, Anthony? Yeah, I mean, it could happen. You never know. <laughs> Things happen. It's just, it's life, right? Uh, yeah, yeah these, these games will last a real long time. They generally play one player on top of it. So if you're really stuck alone, we got you covered. And that's going to be our feature review. So stick around because these are the games that you want to pick up before the holiday season so that you get them to the table. And you get your family or your friends, or as Anthony said, even yourself, down on some great game that's going to last you a quite a long time. But Anthony, before we get into our feature review of the Endless Games of All Time, let's talk about what's going on with a BGA. We have a little contest that is coming up that we want everyone to jump in on. And uh, unfortunately, the uh, time in which people could do it is not endless. No, no, you're running out of time, everybody. Uh, we are running our uh, quasi-annual um, giveaway for our listeners' top 20 games of all time. So if you haven't been listening to the podcast at all, episode 300 is coming up in two weeks. If you have, you know that because we say it constantly. Big old blowout. We're going to talk about our top 100 games of all time. And then the next week, episode 301, we're going to talk about our listeners' top 20 games of all time. And how I build that list is you all tell me what your favorite games are. And we give games away to those who tell us what their favorite games are. So um, to enter that contest, you just need to hop on over to BoardGamersAnonymous.com or Facebook.com slash BoardGamersAnonymous. There is a post on either of those as well as in the uh, show notes for this episode that will take you to the contest page. Give us your name, your email address, and your list of 20 games, and you are entered. I'll take care of all the rest, organize all that figure out what the top 20 is um if you win if we pull your name you'll be able to pick one of the games from that top 20 that is currently in print and available wherever you happen to live so if you're not in the u.s if there's a local store online you know in your country that can ship that to you we will get it off to you so please hit us up on that contest it's one of our favorites and we would love to learn about your top 20 games but Anthony, that's not all. We do a little live stream on Twitch. Why don't you let everybody know? Yep, BGA Live is every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Uh, this week we are doing Marco Polo 2 over at Board Game Arena. Um, so the best way to watch this is twitch.tv slash boardgamearena because then you can join the chat and you can interact with us, ask questions, answer our question of the week. Um, if you are on boardgamearena.com, it is also there on the homepage, but you can just click the little Twitch button there and it'll shoot you over to the Twitch page and you can join us there. So please check us out there. We'd love to be able to see you there and especially jump in the chat 
it's a lot of fun. And again, if you haven't played Marco Polo 2, this is a great way to learn the game and enjoy a good time. All right, Anthony, but that's not all. We have one more special announcement for everybody out there who want to keep up and look cool with BGA. Yeah, Board Gamers Anonymous uh, T Public account. You can check us out on T Public. We have uh, uploaded a few of our logos from the various shows now that we run. Um, so you can get literally anything that they make with that logo printed on it, either Board Gamers Anonymous logo or our Meeple logo or the BGA Live logo is now up as well. So make sure you check that out. They have all sorts of cool stuff, t-shirts, hoodies, baseball caps, uh, kids stuff, wall art, notebooks, mugs, whatever you can think of, whatever you can print something on. You can head on over there and check it out. Make sure you uh, head over to boardgamersanonymous.com. There's a little merch link at the top of the site. Click on that, you will shoot right in there. And we get a percentage of every sale. So it helps us out with the show. Yeah, thank you so much for checking that out. You might want to pick up some holiday gifts. It's really a great time to take a look at that. Some designs that you may have never seen before. So jump over there. We're going to be adding new stuff all the time. And if there's something you'd like to see up on Tee Public, let us know. And again, thanks out to all of our Patreon backers. Thanks to them and everyone who supports us. We're able to get these episodes up. And not only on the podcast, but BJ Live. If you'd like to check out all the ongoings and the special episodes for our Patreon backers, again, patreon.com slash BGA. There's new episodes there each and every week, and we would love for you to join us there. All right, Anthony, so that's everything that's going on with BGA, BGA Live, and I guess Patreon BGA. So let's talk about the things that our listeners are talking about. What's our question of the week? Question of the week this week uh, is, what is the typical lifespan for a game you keep on the shelf? Inspired by this, because I have gotten a few games in recently that I apparently pre-ordered back in like early pandemic lockdown when I was just like clicking around on the internet and buying things because I was sad. Um, <laughs> I kind of got past that a little bit, and, but the games are still coming. So a lot of Essen releases, a lot of stuff. And so I'm now I'm thinking like, what do I take off the shelf? And how long has something had to sit here for me to consider removing it um, without being played or just not interested anymore, right? So I asked everybody the same question. Um, a lot of good answers here. Uh, Brian said he's been collecting for around eight years and games are always coming and going from his collection. Some are replaced with better versions of the same mechanic. Some truly sucked. Some just don't get played enough. Looking at you, Great Western Trail. Right now he's holding at about 200-ish games. A friend of the show, Martin, uh, very active in the Slack group, Patreon backer, he says, I've probably only got rid of 10 games since I started my collection. That's insane to me because I. <laughs> that's so hard. <laughs> Great. It has to be pretty terrible for me to get rid of it. However, it's beginning to get unmanageable. And then mm. he has a picture there of Belle from Beauty and the Beast in the library. <laughs> <laughs> Buried in books. Um, Tommy says, I have some games that have been on my shelf for 10 plus years and they still get played. I've had to use shipping tape to repair my ticket to ride board twice. That's impressive. I've had a few games that are in and out after one or two plays within a few weeks as well. So the answer, of course, it varies. He, however, keeps his collection under 100 games. Also very right. impressive. <laughs> that is very impressive. Uh, Anthony says he personally hates getting rid of games, uh, but normally happens if one of the following statements is true. The game he bought was a disappointment and not quite as fun in the long term. So he got bored. Um, it never gets played because it's too long or there's other games with better mechanics looking at you dominion uh they keep coming out with too many expansions for his wallet to keep up with it he mentions dice masters here 
or he kickstarted a game just to help the developer, but really didn't want the game anyways. So uh, that's pretty good, Anthony. I think you covered most of the bases on that. I think for me, it it usually comes down to space. Like when I reach that point where I end up with a pile, it's not just one game that doesn't fit. It's when I have like a stack and that stack starts to turn into another stack. Um, (laughs) So like, you know, around five or six games that just don't have anywhere to go, then I'm like, okay, okay, it's time. I need to start going through stuff. And honestly, the first step is often putting that stuff in a box and putting it in the basement. And then when I run out of space for the boxes in the basement, I'm like, okay, okay. <laughs> Time to get rid of these boxes. I I hate shipping things. So it it is sometimes difficult to get rid of stuff if people don't want it. But, you know, every now and then I, I get a bug and I, I just have to do it. I think the oddest thing for me happens to be recently, I moved my collection into a Kalex and I reorganized it based upon just your normal alphabetical kind of setup. And now that I've done that, I'm really trying hard to keep the alphabet going. But that means that there are certain games with certain letters that no longer fit. So while it would make logical sense to get rid of a particular game because of a, you know, a well-reasoned rationale, right? Like, hey, I don't play this anymore. It's not a great game. I can't get it to the table. Now it's, I'm looking at the games and I'm like, huh, yeah, I have a lot of games with the letter S. <laughs> <laughs> what am I going to do? Uh, yeah, can I, or sometimes even oddly enough, I'm like, you know, I have a big hole in my collection under the letter J. I could probably pick up another J game, but now that the Kalex is all put together, and if I move one section, I have to basically move them all. I do have a very strange, you know, <laughs> way to look at my board game collection as being too cluttered based upon how many of a game of a particular letter. But I haven't made any cuts of that as of yet. But nonetheless, when a game doesn't fit based on the letter, I gotta think twice every once in a while. That's that's hilarious. I, I would never do. I, I do want to organize my games in some form like that, but I have it like all scattered all over my office now because I lost my Kalax to the kids. Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe when we move, I'm hoping we could like when I move next, we get like a nice finished basement and I can just clean Ooh. it and put shelves everywhere. It's so. very nice. Very nice. Yeah, but it's, it's a challenge. It's uh, definitely a collection you want to keep and a collection that you could get to uh, normally. So yeah, if you'd like to hit us up again, all of our social media is up, is active. Facebook, Twitter, BoardGamersAnonymous.com. So many places to reach out to us. Again, we obviously are going to be doing BGA Live today, Wednesday night. So if you're on the East Coast, it's 8.30 p.m. Or based upon your particular time zone, you could still jump in and check us out. If you happen to miss it, check out the later recordings of it. But, you know, nonetheless, hit us up. Let us know. Love to hear from you. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that's from our listeners. Let's get on to the games that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders. All right. Yeah, so this is a game that I feel like I mentioned at some point in the last year, but I know I wasn't on the acquisition disorder. It's Golem. So this is from Cranio Creations, and it's designed by Simone Luciani, Virginio Gili, and Flaminia Brasini. So that is the design team that's behind Grand Austria Hotel and Lorenzo Il Magnifico. And Gili and Brasini also worked on Alma Mater, which just came out recently, and Queenbra. So really, really good design team. And the game itself, like thematically, is very interesting, as long as they pull it off and it, it works, because <laughs> it is a sensitive subject matter. 
it's fantastical, but still like what they're talking about. It could be really cool. So this is a game about there's a 16th century legend in Prague of the golem, which was created by a rabbi there to protect his people um, from just various potential threats. Right. Uh, so it's, this is like kind of a legend slash myth that has been passed down over the centuries. Uh, I think it was mentioned in Michael Chabon's uh, Cavalier and Clay. If you've ever read that, there was a mention of this. So the game itself is about the golem. You are Kabbalists who create and grow these things, and you'll move them around to different places in Prague and take various different actions, but you can't let the golem get too powerful or it just starts destroying everything. So you have to keep it under your control. So there's various different actions you can take. You can work um, to activate the golem and get bonuses, basically. Build new golems, grow grow your own with the, by getting clay. Um, there's an artifact action to get coins and buy gold and build artifacts. Um, spells lets you gain mana that you're going to use to do your work actions later. And then mirror lets you just take any one action of your choice. Um, they say they're taking some of the, maybe not mechanics exactly, but ideas. And if you look at the board, you can kind of see it from Grand Austria Hotel. So that's interesting as well. Like they definitely seem to have revisited Grand Austria a lot lately with the expansion out and then Golem, which kind of takes some ideas from that as well. So it's, it looks really interesting. Like thematically, it's something new and different that we haven't seen before. In terms of design, it's taking uh, like some core elements from a game that, you know, I always really wanted to like, <laughs> and it just didn't quite work. But it's from three designers that I absolutely love and have done a lot of amazing games. So this is one I'm definitely keeping my eye on. Uh, it's listed for 2020, but I don't know when. Uh, I don't think it came out at SN. So I will just keep my eyeballs on it and hopefully it releases sometime soon and get a chance to play it. Yeah, I mean, obviously great pedigree here. Three fantastic designers, some of our favorite designers. And what's really interesting about this game, as you mentioned, Anthony, is the theme. And if you see the cover of this box, it is quite frightening. You think that you just stumbled across some kind of really eldritch horror kind of board game. And you're like, oh, wow, no, I, I can't. No, no. And then you then you get to take a look on the inside. It's like, oh, it's a standard Euro. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> What's going on here? Not really sure about this. But uh, again, this might be one of those situations like with Abyss that the cover alone sells the game. And then you have a really solid Euro game here. So, yeah, I'm actually, again, this is another situation with the whole world getting hit by COVID that we may not see this game until some point next year. But as you mentioned, if you're taking a look at this game and you absolutely should jump past the initial box cover, although I do recommend taking a look at the box cover because you're going to see a really cool Euro game on the inside. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I didn't even mention this game has marbles. So yes. <laughs> that's, that's how the action selection works. You have these marbles that kind of come out and that's what's available for actions. I feel like it's also on Tabletop Simulator, too. Like, yes. if you want to check it out and see mm -hmm. everything in action, it is also on there. Well, I'm telling you this. You're not, you're not going to see many games like this. <laughs> nope. Nope. It definitely looks unique. And, like, when you combine, like, something super unique like that thematically with designers that you already know and love, it's, like, mm -hmm. it's an instant buy for me. I don't even sure. I don't even really care what the mechanics are. Obviously, I looked at it to talk about it here. But I just, like, no, I'm going to buy this. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so. No, I agree. I think especially since we talked about all of our collections and when games finally leave our collection, having a game that has a unique theme, 
especially from great designers, is kind of a given. It's 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 going to be the tiebreaker whether or not a game leaves your collection. It's like, oh, here's another game about trading in the desert. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. How many camel games do I have exactly? 12? Okay, 12 camel games. Mm. All right. Yeah. So, yeah. So this might actually keep it on the table. All right. So I want to talk about a game that I've talked about way back early in June. This was uh, an anticipated Kickstarter called Freedom 5 a Sentinels comic board game. It's a cooperative comic board game adventure created by one of my favorite designers of all time, Richard Lanius and the Sadler brothers. So what you basically have here is Sentinels of the multiverse thrown into defenders of the realm. So basically that was kind of my first impression as far as the information was concerned back then in the day. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I really like Sentinels of the Multiverse. But to be honest, I've been a little bit not so hot on it based on some of the fiddliness and some of the cheap components. But I did like it a lot. I know that they tried a lot of different ways to make this hit the table. And obviously having a great designer with a tried and true uh, mechanic setup is perfect. And it finally hit Kickstarter. And I've been looking at it for quite some time. And only recently, I think as of yesterday, did I back it. So I want to let everyone know why I'm actually backing it. Again, it seems kind of obvious, but I was on the fence for all of this amount of time. So the Freedom 5, all about the Sentinels of the Multiverse kind of world. Now, again, if you don't know anything about the Sentinels of the Multiverse, basically what you're looking at is kind of like a Justice League version, but like a... a a legally distinct independent version. It has its own lore. It has its own history. It has a whole comic book series, a whole RPG series, numerous, numerous card board games, a lot of stuff out there for that. So if you haven't seen it, you should check it out because for a very long time, up until recently, it was the best superhero board game out there. Now, obviously DC and Marvel have upped their game and that's no longer a thing, but nonetheless, for a long time, it was the best game in town. So why would you want to back this? Well, to be honest with you, there is a lot of good reasons to do so. But the challenge is, is it worth the overall amount of money for the game? Now, there's a lot of different ways to back this game. And I'll talk about this at the end. But basically, what you're going to be able to do is choose, again, based on your backer level, between 8 to 10 heroes. And again, what I like about board games is I like games that have unique power sets, unique cards, asymmetrical kind of stuff, and you get that here. So if you ever played Sentinels, you know that your character has its own unique deck that actually thematically plays based upon a special power. So again, you're going to get that here where each of the individual heroes in the game are going to play uniquely, more or less. Obviously, they're all about hitting and punching and kicking and doing all the things that heroes need to do to save the day. But the cards have some built-in special abilities, and they do somewhat thematically play into the game. So again, you have a large choice of different characters to play. And then on the other side, you fight against 11-plus minor league or mid-boss kind of villains. So again, if you know anything about the universe, there's a lot of these bad guys. They're here in this game. There's also henchmen in the game. And again, if you have not played Defenders of the Realm, 
basically what you're looking at here is an advanced form of pandemic where you're a hero and in that game you're a fantasy hero trying to stop all the evil from taking over the realm and you are pushing back against the henchmen in this game but in the defenders of the realm it's fighting against all the little forces of evil and you also have side quests that you can go on to upgrade your character and as you beat back the bad guys and the mini bosses throughout the game you get certain cards that will let you roll certain dice that will allow you to attack certain villains so again there is certain conditional objectives that you want to be able to tackle in order to be able to overcome the bad guy and again it's all pretty thematic about how the game runs and basically the game you get your own miniature and again based on the backing level you can even get it painted in advance or pre-painted miniature and that character card will have all the information about the character all the slots where you put all the cards it will tell you about all the different actions it will have its own special action deck and action tokens so the base way that you play the game is based on action tokens you're able to take in the game the action tokens are also your life you can get knocked out if you take too much damage and those all go away so again you are fighting this big baddie and one of the really interesting thing about the game is that there are a number of big baddies in this game and there's going to be additional ones that are be available later so you get this comic book you play through the first section, you see how you did, you flip, see what the consequences are, whether you won or you lost. And this tends to be a rather difficult co-op game. Based upon that kind of conclusion, the board sets up differently, and then you fight again based upon the situation, and you try to defeat the villain. If you're not able to do so, then obviously you continue on the game one way or the other. So there is a little bit of a legacy element, or definitely a campaign element as this game goes on. You'll have an opportunity to change up your deck, which is great. So you don't get stuck with the same hero deck from game to game. And you also are able to change up the villains. And again, as you fight the villains, it goes on. So Richard Launius, obviously having so much to do with Arkham Horror, you get that situation where there are consequences based on your co-op play. So this looks like a lot of fun. I was thinking maybe at a backer level that might be somewhat realistic. But again, it was like if I was going to pay something that was going to be this superhero type of situation, the $49 level, which is the retail version with like standees was not going to do it. They sell a $100 version, which is the hero version, which comes with all the plastic miniatures and such. I did back the big version. I did back the... 199 version because i did want the painted miniatures and there are a lot of miniatures in this game so getting everything painted from a non-painter uh was important to me and again the game is based on a tried and true system i do like the whole sentinels little multiverse not as much as the dc or marvel universe but again i don't have that in a richard launius form so yeah i backed it and uh looking forward to it Whew, man, it's so cool when you talk about a game and you're all excited. It sounds good, though. It's cool that they made it. <laughs> I had to wait to a point where they had enough stuff that it was worth the money. And again, I'm still keeping an eye on it to make sure that, again, if you're going to pay that much money, you want to get that much content out of it. So it looks like, based on all of the companies, Greater Than Games, Arcane Wonders, that they're actually going to put a good game out here. So I'm looking forward to it. You still have time to back the campaign if you haven't checked it out yet. 
it might be something that's, you know, worth the look at. So again, the campaign wraps up on Friday, November 13th. Check it out. All right, Anthony, so that's all the games that we want to hit the table. Let's talk about the games that did hit the table. We'll let everyone know if those games are a buy. And they should run out and pick them up in the most safest way possible. If those games are a play and they should play those in the safest way possible, those games are a dodge, just leave them to the curb. Or if those games are the dreaded burn, because you know what? It's 2020, so it's a 2020 game. All right, Anthony, so what do you have up for us this week? All right. I mentioned this last week. Um, I got a chance to play Lost Ruins of Arnak or Arnak, something like that. This is the new big box game from Czech Games Edition uh, designed by Elwin and Min. And it is a, I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting game. It combines deck building with worker placement. So like mechanically speaking, it's fairly simple. But once you dig into it a little bit, there's a lot of different possible combinations and how pieces are moving around and how you kind of pair your your actions together you start the game with a deck of six cards they're very basic uh, the cards typically have some kind of action on the middle and then some kind of movement icon in the top you can spend the cards in a variety of different ways but typically you'll either use them for movement of your workers because your workers need you need to spend the movement icons to place them on the board or you'll use it for the action ability on the card itself some of those actions are free so you can use them whenever, just throw a bunch of cards down. Some of them take an action, so that'll be your turn. So you only really take one action on your turn, and then it goes back and forth with everybody else. You know, it's a worker placement game, so if there's something you want, make sure you grab it when you can. But not all the spaces on the board are worker placement spots. So that's when it gets kind of interesting, because there are a lot of really good opportunities to build up and, you know, move up and increase your abilities and, and gather new things. Or you can rush over and try to grab a spot before someone else gets it. There's a lot of interesting decisions to be had in this game. So the core of the game, of course, is the actions you take. You have this big, massive board with all these different locations you can go to, obviously. But there are six different actions you're going to be able to take in the game. And these are going to correspond to um, basically different types of resources and cards that you're spending. So the first one is to dig at a site. So there'll be these different sites that are printed on the board. And they will have one or two little boot symbols on them. And that's like your basic movement. Like any card you play will get you the boot value. And the movements, they go like boot, jeep, boat, airplane. <laughs> like So some, some abilities will need you to have an airplane icon. And the only way to go to that location is to have an airplane. And those are kind of hard to get. Um, other ones will require one or two boots or one or two jeeps. And then you can spend a card with two icons on it or spend two cards with the icons on it. So, you know, fairly simple. The digging at a site, though, you're going to uh, go there and just get stuff, right? There's nothing complicated about it. You'll get basic, um, there's like lots of different, you know, resources you can pick up, which <laughs> off the top of my head, I can't remember exactly what they're called, but you have coins, you have little compass tokens, um, you have like these little, uh, I guess they're like text or tablets, um, you have little like spearheads and then jewels. And that's kind of the order that they go in, in terms of value. So if you're trying to pick what to take and you have options, typically you work backwards from that. Like the jewels are the hardest to get. So you take them when you can get them. In terms of other actions that you might take, uh, you're going to be able to discover new sites. So you can move into a location, discover a site. You get to take a big, powerful action. You get bonus tokens for doing that. But then guardians also come out. And these are like big monsters that you find in your travels. 
if you are on a space with a guardian at the end of the round and you're taking your worker back, you have to take a fear card into your deck. The fear cards don't do anything. They have no action on them and they just have the one boot symbol. So they're pretty much useless and they eat up space in your hand except to go to the dig a site locations. So they're not horrible, but they're also worth negative one point at the end of the game. So they're not good. <laughs> Next action you can take is to buy a card. So there's going to be a tableau at the top of artifacts and items. This is cool because it changes throughout the game. So at the beginning of the game, there's one artifact available and five items, I believe. And each round, uh, a marker moves over and more artifacts become available and less items. And the artifacts are typically very powerful and they cost compasses, but the items are more versatile, right? So it makes sense to get the items early in the game, less sense to get them later in the game. You can just play a card for whatever actions on it. Like some of the cards you upgrade to will have like action actions on them. And then there's the research track, which is last and is arguably the most important part of the game because I feel like it's probably not always like this, but at least in the couple plays I've done, uh, the majority of points come from the research track. So that is an area you don't want to ignore. Um, this is basically, you will spend a certain amount of resources to move your little magnifying glass up along this like branching path. If you're the first one to get to a space, you get a bonus and you always get a compass wherever you go. If you get to the very top of the research track, you're going to get at least 20 points for that at the end of the game. And then there's an option to buy even more cool stuff by exploring the Lost Temple. So you could get like, I don't know, 25, 30, 40 points off of the research track. So you should do that <laughs> if you can, unless you have a good engine going somewhere else. Like, I'm not saying you have to do this. I don't think you really do, but it seems like the easiest way, especially for new players to the game, just to get the flow and to successfully generate points. I really enjoy this game a lot. It was a lot of fun. And I think the main thing for me, um, especially when you throw deck building in like this, is you need to always have options. You don't want to just have cards in your hand where you're like, all right, blech, I play this, I get an icon, and that's it. That's my turn. You want to be able to chain things together. So the combination of the deck building with the worker placement, you only have two workers, so it's limited in what you can do there, but it's there. And then things like the research track, which you don't need to spend a worker or a card for. You just need to have the resources for means that you're constantly chaining things together and tunneling them through and always having an option. When you buy cards from the market, they go under your deck. So they're going to come out sooner because you are going to shuffle all of the cards you used during that round and put them in the bottom of your deck. So you don't have a discard and a deck standard that you'll all shuffle together at any point. You always have a deck and then you just put everything else underneath it throughout the game. So if you buy a card, you're probably going to get it in the next round, except maybe the last round. So stuff like that makes it very strategic. Like you're like, I'm going to buy this card because I can use it in the next round. And that's going to get me this resource, which lets me move up on the research track to this point. And that'll get me this assistant bonus. And the assistant comes back and I can upgrade the assistant and then use that to get this ability and then go fight this guardian, right? Any game that does that where I can go ding, 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 just I love it. <laughs> Just so many different options. It's so flexible. Um, my only thing about this after playing it, you know, the first time at least was, do I have to do the research track so much? Is this really required? Because it's fine. It's fun, but it's not as fun as some of the other parts of the game. I don't think so, though, you know, having played it again and going through it. Um, there's also, I should mention, if you flip the board over, there's like a serpent track or something. 
I haven't done it yet, so I don't know. I don't remember exactly what it's called, but it's basically hard mode. There's more things there that are trying to stop you. It's more complicated. Um, there's also a solo um, like deck of tiles that comes with the game to make it a little more complicated. So, yeah, lots of flexibility here, lots of different play styles, lots of different things that could come out. The only things printed on the board really are like the values on the research track and the dig site items. Everything else is randomized. So, yeah, I'm going to give Lost Ruins of Arnak a buy. I really, really like this. It's um, where like Sanctum came out and I played it and I really enjoyed it, but it just felt like it wasn't quite there. Like that was a play for me. This one doesn't feel like it has anything missing. It just feels like a nice, cohesive, engaging whole. And mm -hmm. just, I don't know, it, telling you, man, the chaining of the actions, if you do it right and it's balanced well, just perfect. So, yeah, this is a great game. No, it's really exciting to hear because that's that's always the sweet spot. If you are able to key together another actions and you just see things kind of like flow and flow and flow, that's really the best moment in any kind of Euro game. So I'm really, really happy to hear this. So what would you say as far as the weight is concerned for this game? Because that's really what what's kind of kept me away from it. Is this is this a family game? Is it a gateway game? Is this a gamer game? Is it a heavy game? Yeah, no, I mean, I would say it's in the, yeah, like I was about to say three okay. and like looking at BGG, everybody else seems to agree. It's like right at three. It's not heavy, sure. not heavy, heavy. It's not like through the ages heavy, like thinking of CGE okay. games, but it's like, it's in line with a sanctum. Like it's like got a 15 page rule book. It's relatively easy to pick up. I'm not going to play it with my kids, but you know, I feel like heavy, heavy gamers aren't needed to, to enjoy it. So it's, it's definitely that medium weight range. We are finding rare objects and then returning it to the the local people, correct? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, let's pretend that's what they're doing there. <laughs> it's very fantastical, I should say. Like it, they're not like, oh, you're you're invading the ruins of Peru. There's like it's sure. like this underground world. Obviously, there's it's somebody's culture you're raiding, but it's not a real one at least. The center of the earth kind of fantastical like you said as far as like underground there's a whole nother world and and such okay yeah like the the guardians are these big massive beasts and you don't kill them you just have to kind of get around them gotcha um, so it, i don't know it's interesting like what they're doing thematically because it's not i think you're on an island actually so it's like some lost island nice but it's uh you know they're not it's not a real place so they're trying to <laughs> sidestep that stuff wow we have a golem if we need it. We we'll take the golem from the other exactly, board game exactly. and <laughs> we'll use that. Protect the island. Like the island has spirits, right? Yeah. So this could be the uh, the other side of Spirit Island happening at the same time, ironically, or maybe it could yeah. be a spiritual sequel to it. You get all your resources, you win, you get the most victory points, and then the spirits destroy you. There you go. There's a good there's a good amount of karma in there. All right, so what I want to talk about is two similar games, one rather quickly. I've been a friend of Dixit for quite some time. Actually, in fact, when it first came out, the idea of a party game that really utilized unique artwork and had a situation where you were trying to create the right clue that got some of the people to understand what you were saying by this wondrous tarot-sized piece of artwork versus you know giving everything away or being too too hard and difficult to come through so it was an interesting kind of party game and i'm 
typically not a big party game fan. So for Dixit to be one of my favorite, if not my favorite party game of all time, I've been picking up the expansions. It's it's actually a big thing to say, you know, like that I've continued with this. Now, I want to talk about Dixit Harmonies. This came out in 2017. Obviously, Dixit itself and all the expansions, and there's been quite a number of them at this point. There was initially a bunch of base games that gave you different variations on how to play Dixit, which basically were all kind of the same thing. Afterwards, it was all just add-on artwork packs. Now, you didn't need and you don't need this pack in order you know, to play the game or to like the game. But in fact, there is a lot of different types of expansions from different artists that add new cards to the game. So maybe you get bored with the original cards. Maybe people have a certain kind of way of pointing to one card or another. And you want to add some amazing artwork to your game. This is yet another expansion for Dixit. If you were going to play Dixit, I recommend Dixit Journey. For me, it has the best artwork out of all of the Dixit. But again, that's subjective. You might like another one. The Dixit Harmony, again, is just a, a stack of cards. So you get 84 new image cards in the box. The box is way too large for the stack of cards. It's twice, as, twice the size, which uh, I got to be honest, not a fan that they're doing that. But nonetheless, if you want the cards and you like the game, I recommend buying this set and adding it to your collection. This is not my favorite artwork. It is a little whimsical. It is a little abstract. It's a little realistic, but it's none of them so much that I feel like this is my favorite pack. This is just like an okay addition. So pick it up if you like Dixit. My main review is going to be about Mysterium Park. So speaking about Dixit, this kind of follows along quite well. So Again, this Dixit was all about utilizing these wondrous, mysterious, dreamlike pieces of artwork on these tarot-sized cards in order to communicate information and hopefully get picked up by the people in the game. Mysterium, the board game, was this huge game about this haunted mansion where you are working with psychic detectives as this spirit who's been wronged and you're trying to give the psychics all of these kind of whimsical dreams with these cards in order to indicate who was the murderer, where that spirit was murdered, and by what weapon uh, were they murdered by. I love Mysterium. I really do. It's so wonderful to give out the clues. And even to guess the clues is, is not bad. Uh, it's definitely a lot better than code names. There's a lot more to look at. There's a lot more competitive aspect to the game. Mysterium Park does almost the same exact job as Mysterium, but it's one third shorter. So in Mysterium Park, it is about this, again, creepy, mysterious 1950s carnival atmosphere in which a ghost has haunted the grounds and is trying to communicate its murder, right? So once it was a living person in, in the carnival and was killed by one of the carnival employees. So again, the psychic explorers show up. And again, you are the spirit giving these dreamlike clues out. And again, you are trying to figure out who the murderer was. 
and where the murderer take place, but you're not, in fact, trying to figure out what the weapon was. So one third less. On top of which, it doesn't have the giant board and the giant stacking of cards like Mysterium does, which is really one of the downfalls of Mysterium. Like, it's great. It's fantastic. It's fun. It's like this giant dungeon master kind of shield, but it takes a long time to set up the game. It's one of the biggest hindrances of the game. In Mysterium Park, you put out the small board. You put out the cards, really in any particular order, whether it's the murderer or whether it's the location. And then you pull up this this kind of like code card. Think code names. Like when you put that card in that little standee and it tells you exactly where certain clues are important and which clues are not. That's exactly what you're doing here. So as the ghost, you put the card in the standee. You know exactly what are the important cards on the boards. The psychic detectives in this kind of case are trying to guess their particular vision and you're handing out the cards to them. They're trying to interpret them cooperatively, trying to figure things out before the game runs out. That's pretty much it. If you played Mysterium, then you absolutely positively played Mysterium Park. But again, it's a third quicker, if not more, because there's really no setup in this game. It's just laying the cards out, and you're pretty much ready to go. So for Mysterium Park, it's going to get a buy from me, I love Mysterium. I love the Dixit artwork. I think it's great. This artwork is really top-notch. It's far better than the Dixit Harmonies artwork. Again, in my opinion, the box in this case from Ludabell is perfect. I mean, honestly, the insert's great. Everything is tightly packed. There's no waste of space like with their Dixit expansions. Again, it'll allow you get this game to the table. And then only then if you did want to play something longer and a little more convoluted, then you could break out Mysterium. So again, if you're looking to play a game that is a little bit kind of mysterious horror-esque, and yet a lot of fun and artwork, Mysterium Park is probably right for you. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, I like Mysterium, but it's um, I think the length was definitely an issue for me. Like The weight of that game, and then comparing it to something like Dixit, I'm like, I'd rather play Dixit, even though Mysterium's a better game. Because it just takes too long. It does. And the setup is always one of those things where, like, when I get Mysterium to the table, everyone's excited. And then I'm like, you guys go do something else. I got to set this up for 15 minutes. So, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah this is going to suck. But the funny thing about the game here is that, you know, it's basically a 30-minute game. I think, in fact, it says something like 28 minutes, which I don't know is code for something. But it's a 30-minute game versus, I would say... Mysterium itself was probably about an hour-long game. Again, with the setup a little bit longer, it's kind of weird because there's a lot of moving cards and such. So yeah, again, if you were ever interested in Mysterium, pick up Mysterium Park. It just came out. It's a new release for 2020. I think you'll have a lot of fun with it. All right, Anthony, so that's everything that we got to the table this week. Obviously, we're going to get Marco Polo 2 online at BGA Live. But before we get into all of that later today, let's get on to our feature review. So for our feature review this week, we are talking about the top 10 endless games. Those games that never seem to end. And we're so glad that they don't because there's so much content, so much greatness to it. Anthony put together a fantastic list. Anthony, why don't you tell us a little bit about the construction of this endless list? Endless, endless list. 
Uh, yeah, no, I put this together actually a few months ago, right, right at the start of lockdown, when I was thinking about what can I play <laughs> that would keep me busy. And the idea of this was what games are going to last for a very long time and not just what games can you play over and over again? Like this isn't replayability necessarily. This is, and it, to some degree it is, we'll talk about some of those, but it's about games that you could sit and play and just not feel like it's getting old. Just new content, new content, new content. You know, um, there's a lot of these games. Sometimes we call them lifestyle games, but these are not always lifestyle games on this list. These are games that if you're stuck inside with a limited gaming group or none, then you have so many options for how to play them. And so we'll go through what those options are, what you need to buy, what alternatives you might have when buying those things, and basically, you know, how to keep yourself busy if you're stuck inside over the winter. All right, so I'm going to kick it off. I'm going to run through these. Number 10 on my list is Ghost Stories, Antoine Bowser's classic cooperative game. Obviously, a lot of co-op games could fit this. Um, we'll talk about a few. But Ghost Stories in particular is known for its difficulty, right? This is a game that is notoriously hard to beat. You can spend countless hours just trying to beat it once. And when you do that, there are expansions. So <laughs> you can expand it further, pick up more stuff. Um, there's also a fantasy version of this, uh, like more traditional Western European fantasy called Last Bastion. I prefer Ghost Stories because, again, we talk about theme this is not a theme we typically see, the Chinese ghost story, at least not in like Western board games. So it's brutally hard, lots of content to play through. The game is relatively quick, but you can obviously go through it as many times as you want. So that's why Ghost Stories is number 10. All right, number nine on the list, uh, Time Stories. So this one came out back in 2015, and we've all heard of Time Stories, but I feel like it would have been a much bigger deal if it hadn't come out the same month as Pandemic Legacy Season 1 which, you know, skyrocketed to number one on the Board Game Geek Top 100. It's it's a great game, though. It has eight separate expansions, lots of different storylines. I think there's, like, standalone expansions coming out now as well. Um, this is a perfect stuck-in-the-house game because you can play it for hours at a time. Like, an individual storyline comes in a little box, takes four to five hours to play. You could break it up, or you could just sit down and play this for four or five hours, like like binging a TV show on Netflix or something. So... It plays pretty well at one, it plays well at two, you can play up to four, however big your family is. So definitely make sure you check each individual module, though, because some of these are better for different player accounts than others. But lots of content out there. Most of this stuff's still in print, too. Robinson Crusoe is number eight. Uh, it's Ignacy Trevichek's classic cooperative game. Um, this one is interesting because it has so many different scenarios, right? So... There is an expansion that came out um, that kind of doubles the amount of content already in the box, like the 2013 release. Then there's like two dozen different promos that Portal Games has released in the last eight years. And while you can't just go out and necessarily get those, they do have a treasure chest coming out that has all of them in there, plus some new ones. So if you get the base game, plus the expansion, plus the treasure chest, you have something like 30, 35 different scenarios to play through. And you're not going to beat any of them on your first try. Like, it's not quite as brutally hard as Ghost Stories, like out of the box, but it's decently difficult. And it's highly variable because the order those cards come out is always going to be different. So this is one of those games that you could play over and over and over again, and it would take a very long time to get through all the content. Number seven is Sherlock Holmes Consulting Detective. This is 
actually a bit of an older game. This one came out in 1981, um, won the Spiel des Jahres way back when, and finally got reprinted by Asmodee about three years ago. But then they went ahead and released a bunch of other content for it. So I think there's four different boxes of this stuff now. I mean, I forget the exact number of cases in each of these. I think it's around 10. So each of these cases takes two or three hours to run through. You can do them by yourself. They are decently difficult if you don't have people to help you out and go through the materials. You can do it with a group, two people. It's a perfect couple activity. But it's a lot of fun just to dig through these fake newspapers and, and look stuff up and go through those clue books. And because they each take two or three hours, you're looking at, you know, 50, 60 hours of content if you pick up the different boxes. And that's assuming you do well enough <laughs> on a case that you don't want to repeat it. Because when you complete it, you're going to look at the back and see how many questions you can answer. Compare that to how many questions Sherlock Holmes answered, because in these games you're playing like the Baker Street Irregulars, not Sherlock Holmes himself. And maybe you didn't do very well. So let's do it again, um, which I've certainly done a few times. Next on the list is uh, one of those aforementioned lifestyle games, Star Wars X-Wing Miniatures. Honestly, this goes for any of these like miniatures games, but I chose this one because there's so much stuff for it. Um, the flight path system has been used for Star Trek, for Dungeons and Dragons, for the original like bi-wing, you know, tripod stuff uh, from Ares games. So lots of different formats for this, but X-Wing I think has the most content out for it and a ton of replayability because of that because you can build your own stuff and you can face off against any combination stuff the game itself only takes like 45 minutes to an hour you can play it you need a decent amount of space but not a huge amount like most kitchen tables will cover it there is not like a pure out of the box solo mode for this but there is a fairly famous fan expansion um, that was made for the first edition of the game and there's been some tweaks and adjustments for the second edition but even still like it's a great two-player skirmish game. So if you have anybody else in the house who's interested, including your children, it's great for that. And where a lot of like two-player battle games are too complicated, too long, too involved, this one is none of those things. You just need to know the basics of the ships you have and the cards you have, a few basic mechanics, and you're good to go. Number five on the list is Zombicide Black Plague. And you know what? Honestly, when it comes to Zombicide, you know, pick your poison. There are many different iterations of the formula from the original to the expansions to the medieval spin and Black Plague. Uh, Massive Darkness fits the bill as well. It's got the fantasy theme. But honestly, these games are not known for being particularly deep. They don't really challenge you much more than like an average miniatures game. But there's just so much content, right? The combat is great because they've been refining it for like 10 years. The movement puzzle is really relatively interesting. Um, and it scales pretty well all the way up to six people. Not that you probably will have six people to play this if you're stuck at home, but dozens and dozens of characters. You don't even need all the expansion stuff to do it. Um, out of the box is pretty good. So if you're looking for just like miniatures out of a box, this is a pretty good game for that. Next up is the trio of games from uh, um, Fantasy Flight Games covering the kind of that Overlord formula. So Descent... Uh, Imperial Assault or the new Lord of the Rings game. All of these kind of cover the same basic idea. Each game is different, of course, but they use the same core, like Doom, the board game mechanic. Descent does have like a classical overlord. Um, Imperial Assault has the uh, the Imperial player versus the rebels. 
but they also all now have an app that'll kind of run things for you. And then Lord of the Rings kind of mashes up that descent formula with uh, Mansions of Madness to give a little bit more depth and puzzle to the game. Um, it's actually my favorite of the bunch. But if you really just want like miniatures on the map running around doing stuff, go Fantasy with Descent, go Star Wars with Imperial Assault. And there are dozens and dozens of expansions for all of these things. Um, Lord of the Rings is still building up. It just has the one expansion, but a lot of content already. So, and of course, you could go Cthulhu, pick up Mansions of Madness 2nd Edition. That has like six expansions at this point as well. So um, the bottom line is one of these big box miniature games from Fantasy Flight will last you a good long while. Number three, the seventh continent. This is quite literally thousands of cards in a box. So you have, I would consider a pretty near endless story driven format here. Like I'm sure people have finished the game. have gotten through all of it, gotten through the expansion are waiting for seventh Citadel. I am not that person. I've gotten through a few. It took a decent amount of time because they're hard. And I don't know if I'll ever get to the expansion, which I did buy before I even started playing the original, but man, there's a lot of cards in this box. So uh, one of the major benefits of this game over some of the others on the list is that it's an indie publication, so it doesn't have a ton of miniatures and is fairly self-contained in the base box. You could actually even get just the core content for like 60 bucks um, when they have it in stock online. You don't need to spend hundreds of dollars like a lot of these other games. And there's a lot of content already there. Um, the downside of that, of course, is that you can't just walk into your local store or Amazon and order this. You, you do have to go through them. So something to keep in mind. Uh, number two, Arkham Horror, the card game. I had to put an LCG on the list, so I picked the one with the most content slash best overall mechanics. I'm a longtime Lord of the Rings, the card game fan. I'm recently a big Marvel Champions fan, but this game is sleeker, more intuitive, easier to teach. It's more story-driven, which is great if you're playing alone. It does play naturally as a solo game, uh, and the outcome, the outcome of each individual game does have consequences on how you play and progress through the rest of the game. So if something bad happens, it'll pop up later. If you lose in a game, you don't have to go do it again. You just proceed with the losing path. So that's pretty cool. Uh, it's not like Lord of the Rings, which frequently is just like play the scenario over and over and over again until you beat it, <laughs> which can be frustrating sometimes if it's particularly hard. The game has been out now for four or five years, I think. And there is so much content. And people really love it, too. So it's actually relatively easy to find. Um, that's the problem with Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings, the card game. They still make stuff for it for some reason. But most of the content is out of print. I'd say about half, maybe more, is out of print in any given time. You can always get the base box. You can always get the recent stuff. But everything in between is like up and down. So if you want all that content, good luck. Um, Marvel Champions is also very good if you just want combat and you like Marvel. But for, for my money, Arkham is still the best of the three. And then numero uno on the list, number one, is, of course, Gloomhaven. So if we're talking about endless games, and again, I know some of you have beaten this, and you're amazing. Good on you. I, I, you guys are amazing. I'm never going to beat this. We're talking like 100 plus scenarios for the base game, another 30 scenarios for the expansion. There's like a dozen or more downloadable scenarios that have come out over the time. We have Frosthaven coming out sometime in the near future. We have Jaws of the Lion. So you combine all that stuff, and yeah, it's a little expensive, but probably not on par with like Imperial Assault and everything. And you've got like 300 scenarios to play through. And each of those takes like an 
an hour and a half, two hours. So that's a lot. <laughs> you should be good. <laughs> lots and lots of content here. You can play at any player account. It scales pretty well up and down uh, in terms of player account. Very good game solo as well. So obviously a lot of things mention Gloomhaven all the time. And it is the number one game of all time on BoardGameGeek for a reason. But for this particular list, um, it makes sense to be number one. So there you go, guys. Ten games. They're endless. Play them for days. Uh, I believe all these are in print and available to buy. So check them out. All right. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table.